Shabbat Shalom. Today is the conclusion of our study in the book of Esther, looking at the reason uh, behind the Feast of uh, Purim. You know, out of all the studies that I've done, I'm just going to be up front, out of all the studies that I've done, this one ranks at the top. It's one of my favorites. And, and, and the reason I say that is because rarely are we given such a comprehensive prophetic oversight and how it all is going to come down as we are given in Esther. And you want to add to that the overwhelming, I mean overwhelming presence of the Messiah Yeshua in this book is awesome. It is awesome. It is gripping. And it, it speaks to you. The book cannot help but speak to uh, those who confess the Messiah Yeshua. It speaks to you in a marvelous way. This is the effect that the Word of God is supposed to be having on our life. Amen? Well, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about that special decree. You guys know this now. A special decree went out throughout the whole kingdom. The decree was a proclamation of salvation to the Jewish people, and it was also a proclamation of death to their enemies. To all the enemies of the Jewish people, they were to die. And obviously, a decree like this, it is going to send shockwaves. This is a decree that's going to send shockwaves throughout the kingdom to the point where we have Gentiles doing the unthinkable. Gentiles going forth and converting to become as Jews. To live in the manner, of, in the ways that the Jewish people lived. Leaving, abandoning what they were comfortable with. Abandoning the things they loved to do to grab on to the righteous commandments of God. Those beautiful commandments that were given to Israel at Mount Sinai. Well, today, we're going to, as we continue in, in our conclusion, we're going to see the effects that this document is going to have, not upon the righteous Gentiles who converted and became as Jews, not in regard to those Jews, uh, how it affected the Jews, because we already know how it affected the Jewish nation. They arose with joy and jubilation. They were joyous over this decree. Now, today, we're going to be looking at how the enemies of the Jews responded and how they are dealt with. And so with that said, we are going to go right at it and we're going to begin chapter 9, verse 1. And we read the following. Now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, now let me let's back up for a second. What was proclaimed to happen on the 13th day of the 12th month the, 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 in, in the Hebrew calendar? This was the day that Haman had set out for the Jews to be destroyed. This, is, this, is, this was the day. Okay, so in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. Now, this is awesome. Because what was originally decreed was death and destruction to the Jewish people, but now we see there is a decree of life, of salvation, this is the entire story of the Word of God. Those who become disciples of Yeshua, it's the entire story. Moving from death, which we have been condemned to, passing into life, right? These are the words of Yeshua. Those who believe in Him will pass from death to life. And this is the very thing that we are seeing right here in the first verse of chapter 9. It's beautiful. Moving from death to life. This is the whole, this is the story. This is the biblical story. And he goes on, on that day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, and that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Just going back to what is this? What is, what is being fulfilled here? This is the golden rule. As you seek to do unto others, it will be done unto you. You can take it to the bank because that is the law and the prophets, the entire word. That's the truth of the word. And that... That should hit home. Because the way you're treating others, the only expectation you can have is you're going to reap that upon your own head. Obadiah, the prophet, says in, in chapter 1, verse 15, For the day of the Lord is upon all nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. What's so fascinating is this is, this is actually stated in the exact same context that we find uh, what was stated in Esther, verse 1, chapter 9. Exact same context. The enemy's Jews rising up 
And as they have sought to do to the Jewish people, to the people of God, it will be brought back upon their own head. The golden rule will prevail. Yeshua has spoken. His words will stand. They're true. Amen? Moving on to verse 2. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerosh to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. The fear of the Jewish people literally gripped and consumed the entire kingdom. It fell upon all people. Isn't that interesting? Because this is a reoccurring theme that we see being played out in Scripture. We see this over and over again. When the Jewish people, when the Lord, by His outstretched arm, by great mighty works, when He took His people, Israel, out of Egypt, brought them into the promised land, what happened to the inhabitants of the land? How did they respond to the Jews coming to Israel, entering in the promised land? Well, we read in Deuteronomy 2.25, This day, and this is the Lord speaking, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. This is exactly what is going down in our story of Esther. Fear has overtaken the inhabitants of the kingdom. They are trembling with fear because of them. And see, this is going back to something I talked about, if you remember, in the death of America. What's so scary is when you see inhabitants being gripped with fear, that is the precursor to God unveiling judgment. We know judgment is coming in, in Esther, in our story. We know it's coming because this information is given to us. This is the, the precursor to this unfolding judgment. Continuing on in verse 3. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work. Look at this. These are the, these are the creme de la creme. All right? Important men. Men doing the king's work. What did they do? They helped the Jews. But listen to this. Because the fear of Mordechai fell upon them. You know, the fact that this statement is even included in this story, to me, is breathtaking didn't have to include it we already got this concept that fear fell upon the people of the land we don't need to go through this but the text is explicit here we have men rising up to assist to join the jewish people why ask yourself the question why are they doing this and we are told at the very end because the fear of mordecai fell upon them the fear of mordecai Isn't that interesting? Because that's exactly how it went down when the Word became flesh in the ministry of Yeshua. Think about it. With the coming of Yeshua, the King of the Jews, Gentiles all over the world were overcome with fear. A godly fear which comes through the gospel message. Godly fear coming through the gospel message. Yes, I understand. The gospel message, it is good news. And I understand it is hope. It is joy. It is all those things. Bring it to the core. And I will tell you this. It is fear. It is godly fear. Not worldly fear. It is a godly fear. Let me give you an example of this actually being played out. Of fear being evoked through the spreading of the gospel. If we go to the 24th chapter of Acts, we find Paul, he's taken into custody Uh, by the Romans, over this big snafu. Jerusalem was literally turned inside and out because of Paul. The the, the holy city was in an uproar because of the apostle Paul. So the Romans had to come down. They had to take him into custody. And uh, the interesting thing is is it allowed for the apostle Paul, it presented him with the the opportunity to speak the gospel in, in some of the most prominent men in all of Rome. All right? So looking at this, as we come to verse 24, Paul is brought before Felix the governor. And listen to what is said. This is the power of the gospel. This is the effect that it should be having on man. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. What is he hearing? He's hearing about Yeshua. He's hearing about the gospel. This is what he is doing. 
Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, it's very important that you understand, these elements that we are going through right now, these are elements that describe what the gospel message is. You want to know what the gospel is? Pay attention. He reasoned about righteousness. This is a gospel message. Self-control, gospel message. And the judgment to come. The judgment to come. And how does he respond? Felix was afraid. He's terrified. And answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. The words that Paul spoke, they were so powerful. He trembled. Felix trembled, had to send him away. He's terrified. That's the effect that the gospel message should have. Unfortunately, the gospel message has been stripped down. It's been totally stripped down. All the godly fear has been removed from it. People should be trembling. We need to get better at preaching the gospel. We need to get better at preaching the gospel. Preaching love, preaching forgiveness of sins. It doesn't matter what sins people have committed. It is not too far for the Lord to reach. It is not too hard. The Lord gave his life. Whatever sins people have committed, we've got to be good about telling people, you have forgiveness. This no longer should have oppression over you. And as part of the gospel, then we tell them, if you don't, if you don't turn, you will be destroyed. You will face your maker in a horrible atmosphere, in a horrible environment. You are going to be tortured. We need to get better at preaching the gospel. I want to have the effect that the Apostle Paul had when he preached the name of Yeshua with power. That's the effect we want to have. But are we preaching the gospel? Or are we preaching a pseudo-gospel of what we feel is appropriate, a seeker-sensitive gospel, rather than spirit and truth? That's what we want. All out of the motivation of a heart of love, as you would want to save your own children. This is how we, we need to think about it. You know, I have four kids. We need to get in the mindset of when I look at other people who are lost, I want them to be saved. I want to have the care and concern that I have for my own kids. Isn't that the love of Yeshua? Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why is Paul talking about judgment? I don't want to hear about judgment. I only want to hear about the good things. Right? This is what your flesh tells you. But here he's talking about the judgment seat of Mashiach, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Paul understands the gospel. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we go out and persuade men. This is what we do. This should be driving. Godly fear should be driving this. The gospel message. What kind of impact does a statement like this have? It's monumental. This is what drops people to their knees. Amen? This is what drops them to their knees and say, Oh God, forgive me. I need you. I am terrified. Fear has come upon me. I need to be forgiven. I do not want you as an enemy. Because you will not survive if you rise up against God. It is not going to happen. Colossians 1.28, Paul, in teaching us how to preach the gospel, Yeshua we preach, warning every man, going out, warning, not patting people on the back, encouraging them, yes, not patting people on the back for their sins, thinking that they're going to get away with embracing sexual immorality. You think that you, you go day after day embracing sexual immorality, you are going to die. You are going to die in your sin. You need to turn from your sin. You got to do it. If you're, if you're suffering from, from idolatry and covetousness, where covetousness has an amazing way to get you, to take you off the path of righteousness, to take you off the narrow path, it is deadly because you start following the ways of the world. I want to be successful according to the world's interpretation of success. It will, it will, it will, it will swallow you whole. There'll be nothing left. Embrace the gospel. Embrace the fear and teach the fear. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Messiah Yeshua. And getting back to our story, 
continue on. And all the officials of the province, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordechai fell upon them. No question, this is the deeper intent here is that of the Messiah Yeshua. He's a a perfect typology of the Messiah Yeshua. Moving on to verse 4. For Mordechai was great in the king's palace. Listen to this. Mordecai, he is great where in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. So here we're told, Mordecai, he's great. His fame spreads throughout the entire kingdom. I ask you, who does this sound like? There's one candidate, one Jew that sounds This is Messiah Yeshua. And it is it's just interesting, Mordecai became increasingly prominent. You think about the words that, uh, that uh, Yochanan the Immerser spoke, that John the Baptist, he spoke, when he said, his disciple comes to him, and he tells him, I must decrease, but he must increase. Because he was becoming increasingly prominent. The message of Yeshua went to the four corners of the globe. His fame spread. Let me give you some evidence. In Mark 1.27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? Yeshua just had cast out a demon. What new doctrine is this? For with authority commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. This is the effect of the gospel. This is the effect that Yeshua had, the impact that he had upon the kingdom, the kingdom of the earth. This is the impact. The very thing that we're told regarding Mordecai is the very thing that we see being fulfilled in Yeshua. You think about countless books, articles, commentaries. You could stack them to the moon. Have been written over generation after generation about one Jewish, Jewish man. The man, Messiah Yeshua. Over and over. He makes the front covers of secular magazines. Time and time again. Unbelievers. Talking about Yeshua. Let me give you a good example. There was an article, there, there was a Time Life released a, uh, one of their publications, their magazines, just recently. And the, it was right on the front cover. And listen to what it said. This is what it said. The life of Jesus, how his lessons, miracles, and devotion changed the world. It's true. This Jewish man changed the world. He impacted it like no one could have impacted it before. If you were to take all the great men that have ever existed and put all their works together, they would have paled in comparison to the Messiah Yeshua. There's no one like him. He has changed the world. And this is the effect that we see Mordecai has had on the kingdom. The world has changed. The kingdom of Ahasuerus has changed because of Mordecai. Because his fame spread. Because fear of Mordecai spread throughout the land. It's awesome. Moving on to verse 5. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. In other words, the Jewish people, they're given total victory. Salvation has come to the Jewish people. And remember, it is all in the name of Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew. The way this story ends is exactly how this age is going to end. And it is, we're, at, we're at the end of the age right now. Israel is going to be victorious. And I'm going to tell you they're going to be victorious through one, their king, the Mashiach ben David, the Messiah, Yeshua. The Bible is clear through Yeshua we are promised victory. And we see this in Revelation, just to give an example, 2.25, Yeshua says, But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power, oh, isn't this interesting, over the nations. Think about that. I will give him power over the nations. The very thing that is unfolding in our story in Esther. Yeshua speaks on a prophetic level that, well, this is how it's all going to end. And this is your expectation. You will triumph through me. Hold fast. Don't let go. Focus on me. Moving on to verse 6. And in Shushan the citadel, the Jews, and actually the, 
the word uh, citadel is bira. It's actually palace. And this will come into play later. But Shushan the citadel or the palace. The Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also uh, Pashandata, uh, Dalphon, uh, Espata, Parata, Adelia, Eridata, uh, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Veyazata. The ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadata, the son of Hamadata, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. Okay, so here we see Haman's sons, his lineage, his genealogy, it's wiped. It's wiped away. He had, in other words, his name, his memory has been erased. You think about that. He has no one to carry on a legacy. He has no legacy. He has nothing. It's all been destroyed. So his ten sons, uh, they were killed. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. Moving on to verse 12. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel. And over and over, it keeps referencing where they got killed. Shushan, the palace. Birah. Shushan the palace, Shushan the palace. And the ten sons of Haman, what have, they, uh, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces, he asked. Now, what is your petition? So the king asked Queen Esther, what's your petition? It shall be granted to you, or what is your further request? It shall be done, moving on to verse 13. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are on Shushan to do, to, pay attention here, to do again tomorrow... According to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. How peculiar is this request? Or at least a good portion of this request. This request is peculiar. And why do I say that? Well, if you were paying attention, Haman's ten sons are gone. They've been killed. They've been eradicated. They've been dealt with. Why is it that Esther comes back with a request and asks specifically to have them hung tomorrow? They're to hang tomorrow. What is going on here? You know, when you read stuff like this in Scripture, heed the call. Because it's calling to you, drawing you in, telling you, investigate this investigate what is going on, figure it out. What is happening in this passage? What is the Lord trying to say? Because this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's peculiar. They've already been killed. Well, let me explain what is actually uh, going on here on a much, much deeper level. If we go to the Hebrew on this passage, we find that the actual word used for tomorrow, and I'll highlight this for you, is machar. Machar is the word used. Now, what is interesting about this Hebrew word, machar, yes, it can literally mean, quite literally, the next day, the morrow, okay? That's not all it's mean, and that's not the way it's always used in the Torah. The way that we find it being used at times in the Torah is for a time to come. A time to come. A time, perhaps, in the distant future. So, Understanding the true definition of mahar, understanding what's at stake here, what's, what's being said, we could read the following passage as though Esther's not just uh, requesting that the ten sons of Haman be hung on the gallows literally the next day, but you could interpret it that she is requesting from the king that the ten sons of Haman are to be hung in a time to come. Now you might be thinking, well, Daniel, that's pretty far out, that's a great display of spiritual gymnastics. <laughs> and, and you should be cautious, always, because we don't want to over-spiritualize. We're just looking for the truth. We're, we're looking for what is the Lord intending to convey here. Where am I going with this? Let me share with you a little bit of history, and you're going to see exactly where I'm going. Going back to World War II, we know the Nazis, they were responsible for killing millions of people, Okay? of which 6 million Jews, some 6 million Jews were actually died at the hands of the Nazi regime. This is what we now call the, the Holocaust, right? Well, with the fall of Nazi Germany, and I should say with the beautiful fall of Nazi Germany, part of God's judgment 
that he reaped upon that nation for the atrocities committed against his people, part of that judgment was seen in 1946 was something known as the Nuremberg Trials. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Nuremberg Trials, these, these were trials, I, I would tell you, it's one of the most important aspects of our history. It's one of the most important things that happened post-World War II in regards to the response of what happened to World War II that has ever existed. The Nuremberg Trials. I say that because finally the world would see exactly how wicked and inhumane the Nazi regime really was. Much of their wickedness uh, was, was unknown during the time as everything, you know, everything's going on, everything's unfolding. Much of their wickedness, uh, as, at least as far as the world is concerned, was unknown. What happened with the Nuremberg trials is finally the world got to see, and you'll understand the importance of the Nuremberg trials when I get done. The world finally got to see evidence that the, the atrocities that the Nazis committed, the atrocities that they committed against the Jewish people, this becomes very important to us when you take into consideration men like uh, the, the, the former leader of Iran, Ahmadinejad, who would go out and say, the Jews have completely fabricated the Holocaust. Have you heard this? There's a lot of these naysayers that go on, the Holocaust is a total fabrication. They, the Jewish people have made it up. They want the world to feel sorry for them. They're looking just to gain power over the world. Though they are going to get that. <laughs> Despite that, it's lies. Pure lies. And what the Nuremberg trial does is it makes these statements look utterly foolish. They're laughable. They're ridiculous. Because the Nuremberg trials wasn't something concocted by Jewish people. Multiple nations got together, who were not Jewish, they were not Israel, multiple nations with different ideologies, the Allied forces coming together to testify of what the Nazi regime did to the Jewish people. And you look at how these things unfold, and there is no question it was the hand of God doing this. And so these people, this is, this is one of the aspects of how important the Nuremberg trials are, is that it's evidence. I'm sorry, if you think it's a fabrication... Your head is in the sand. You are deceived. You're a liar. Because we have evidence all over the world that they spent the time, they devoted relentlessly time to evidencing these things. They are true. So the importance of this trial, to say the least, uh, is immense. Well, the details of the trial itself, what the trial would lead us to, the, the, the crescendo of it, this is something of special note to us considering especially where we're at in our story and the fact that Esther has requested something a little peculiar to hang Haman's ten sons on the gallows. Well, to oversimplify, unfortunately, uh, the details of this trial, we find that there was 24 of Hitler's most prominent military and, and, and political influencers. They were actually being tried in the Nuremberg trials. They were being tried with various... Things, war crimes, crimes against humanity. Obviously, that would include uh, the treatment of the Jewish people in their own country. Well, these trials actually began on November 20th, 1945. Now, keep in mind, World War II ended in September 1945. They wasted no time at all in getting to these trials. Again, I tell you, it's like you see the hand of the living God coming on. Judgment is coming upon them quickly. Now, as we, as, the thing about this is, is they were quick to begin the trial. But the trial was not quick. The trial was almost a year. Almost a year long. Because of the amount of evidence that was being compiled and investigated, it was overwhelming. I mean, there's no question as to what, what Nazi Germany was doing. But as we come to October 1st, 1946, about a year later, Finally, the sentences are read, the verdicts are given. And these, these 24 men, I'm going to break it down for you. This is what took place. Seven of these men were sentenced to prison, 10 years to life. Three were actually acquitted. Two, we find, were not charged at all. And then the remaining 12 were given a death sentence. And this is where the story gets Really, really interesting. 
Of these 12 men, are you ready for this? Of these 12 men, only 10 men were actually put to death by the sentencing. Only 10. Again, you cannot make this stuff up. One man had already died, unknown to the Allied forces. He had died trying to escape from Berlin in May 1945. He was convicted in the Nuremberg trials, but he already died. The other man actually committed suicide in his cell prior to being executed, which in a supernatural fashion, it left exactly ten men. Now, you got to know the methodology by which these criminals were to be executed, it was debated. I mean, there's a lot of cogs moving here in World War II, post-World War II. There's so many cogs moving that when you embrace it all and you go through it, you just step back and there's only one thing you say. God had his way. God had his way. And I say this, there was strong opinion of how these men were to die. The men of military stature that were convicted, it was strong opinion that, hey, they're to die by death of firing squad. They're to receive a soldier's death. And, and, and a soldier's death is more of an honorable death. Clearer minds came to the table and said they do not deserve such a death. Amazing testimony. You can see God, the Holy Spirit, literally working. These men are not worthy of that kind of death. Well, this is of significant importance to us when you consider exactly what Esther is asking King Ahasuerus to do. Remember what she requested. She requested for tomorrow, Machar, sometime in the future, that the ten sons of Haman be hanged. And guess what? The king, in, in the story, he grants her request and guess what? We're going to find that request was actually met right here at the Nuremberg trials. Could it be possible that 10 men that were hung based upon the verdict given at this trial was actually a fulfillment of what Esther requested over 2,000 years ago? Is it possible? I want you to consider the following evidence. This is amazing. The last man to hang on the gallows, he was the tenth and final man. He was known as Julius Stryker. He was the publisher of the Der Sturmer. Now, if you remember, we talked about that briefly, that magazine. It was one of the most venomous, poisonous, godless, anti-Semitic pieces of publication that has ever existed. The whole point, of, it was a Nazi publication. And the whole point of it was to go out to demonize the Jews, to get Germany to hate the Jews so that they could get away with committing the atrocities they wanted to commit against them. And let me tell you something about war. If you've ever studied the art of war on various levels, I'm going to tell you one of the most important things for any empire, for any government to embrace is propaganda. Propaganda is huge. And Julius Stryker... Um, he really was Hitler's prominent propagandist. And the amount of damage and godlessness he wreaked, you, you, you can't put it into words. Well, what's interesting, as he was being brought to be hung on the gallows, in his, in his final words, it said that he looked down upon his witnesses almost with this, I mean, just stark, cold, brutal hatred. And this is what he said. Are you ready for this? This is what came out of his mouth. The tenth and final man. Purim Fest, 1946. Can you imagine the tenth and final man coming out, proclaiming before he's hung, Purim Fest, 1946. You know what I want to say right now. You cannot make this stuff up. Is this amazing? Think about this. This stuff, man, when you start to delve into this stuff and see the hand of the living God in this world and Him moving the pieces and there ain't nothing that His enemies can do about it, it is awesome. He has left a testimony. Fulfillment of prophecy. When we read verse 13, then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again, Machar, sometime in the future. Go home, read Exodus 13. Machar is used sometime to come. When your son asks in the time to come, then you shall say to them, 
according to today's decree. I Mind-blowing. What Esther requested of the king, who is representative of the Father in heaven, was fulfilled in 1946. Pretty amazing. To add to this irony, do you know what the courthouse was called in Nuremberg? It was called the Palace of Justice. That's what it was called. How ironic is that? They could have called it the Court of Justice, could have called it anything. It's called the Palace of Justice. Why does this really grip me? Do you remember what Shushan, where the men, Haman's sons, were convicted? Remember what Shushan is identified? Go and read it. Read chapter 1, read chapter 3, what we just called. It is Shushan, what is, some translations say this, is Shushan the palace. The palace. You cannot make this up. You can't do it. And that's where they were condemned. In the palace of justice. Absolutely amazing. Isn't God phenomenal? Justice was served. Moving on to verse 14. Continuing on in Esther. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And we've seen that again fulfilled in 1946. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar, killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Verse 16. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives. And had rest from their enemies. I'm going to say that again. They had rest from their enemies. And killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Understand this aspect of the story. Where the Jews, they receive rest. It's prophetic foreshadow of what is going to happen in the age to come. This is the deeper intent of the text. That's what's going on here. Yeshua is coming back for his people for one reason. To give us rest. That's why he's coming back. We are going to have rest. Look at what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.6. And since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. The enemies are going to be destroyed. And to give you who are troubled rest. It's going to give us rest with us. It's amazing. He's speaking to the Gentiles and Jews. You're going to be given rest with us. When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This is what Esther, the story of Esther, is prophesying. It's a foreshadow. You think about other commentary, the whole chapter in chapter 4 is talking about the rest of God. Keep your eyes on Yeshua. Keep your eyes focused on that rest. You're going to receive it. And that is going to give you the strength to endure. Cling to hope. Cling to the joy of the Messiah Yeshua. Moving on to verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 18. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 19. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. So here we're given one of the traditional observances of Purim that you would do. And that is to send presents to one another. What, but, but in the Hebrew what, what is called is Mishloach Menot or Shaloach Menot. Um, it's the sending of portions. It's the gifts of food um, that you would send and you would make sure that it's commanded that, you know, even the rabbis will tell you today that it's commanded that you give at least one person a, a plate of food, a, fe a feast. You're to, you're to give a feast to the poor. The poor are to be raised up. They're to have joy during this time. And I find that fascinating of this... Uh, Shalach Menot, this Mishloach Menot, uh, this, we're, we're, the, the, what has been preserved amongst observance of Purim. And what is Purim? Purim is deliverance. It's a celebration of deliverance. And one of the things that has been preserved in regard to observance of deliverance is Mishloach Menot, giving a feast to all. All are supposed to be rejoicing and partaking in this feast and food. 
And here's why it's interesting. When we go to Revelation 19.9, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper. Supper. Dapnon in the Greek. It's a formal meal. It's a feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. In other words, what I'm saying is, is you see that Purim has preserved something spectacular, prophetically spectacular, of celebrating deliverance. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to feast, and no one's to be left out. Everyone is to feast. That's prophetic of what's going to happen in the age to come. And Yeshua is speaking to his brothers in Matthew 8. He says, many will come and sit down. They will come from the east and the west, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to be sitting down and feasting. It's going to be awesome. Moving on to verse 20. Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. Verse 22, as in the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them. Specifically, the text, this is exactly what it says. To turn from sorrow to joy. How many times do we read in the prophets? How many times do we read in the New Testament? Yeshua in John chapter 16. Your sorrow is going to be turned to joy. This story is just drowning in prophecy. It's all there to prophetically tell us of what's going to happen. And this celebration of deliverance and the, and the, and, and the keeping of it, the preserving of it, is to remind you See, if the church understood how powerful the feast of the Lord are, how powerful Purim is, we need the reminder because we're living in hell. We're living in pain. We're living in sorrow, tears. People are suffering. We need the feast of God. This is a time to go commune with God, to be recharged, to have that joy sown into our heart. Amen? So their sorrow will be turned to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy and sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So to memorialize this day, the traditions implemented, sending presents to one another. Again, this is in response to the fact that the Lord had delivered Israel. And I say, what do you know? Because at the end of the age... When Israel is delivered and they're given rest, what are we told in Scripture is going to happen? Oh, what a coincidence. We're going to be given presents. We're going to be given our reward. What's Yeshua say in the very last chapter of Revelation? Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. There's going to be delivering of presents. You can't make this up. And this is exactly what's being said here. It's unbelievable. How comprehensive, the prophetic, uh, how comprehensive this book really is. Verse 23. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. Interesting, who institutes this? It's Mordecai. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatta, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. Verse 25. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot, which Haman had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head. Golden rule. And that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. There is no legacy. There is nothing left for the wicked. The memory of the wicked, we're told in Scripture, will be blotted out. There is no memory. There is nothing left. Verse 26. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, verse 27, the Jews established and opposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them. Isn't that interesting? This feast has been, has been kept, it has been preserved amongst Israel. They've been keeping it generation after generation. But it wasn't just to be them. It was also to extend to all those who would join Israel. 
Again, we see the prophetic inference of Gentiles being grafted into the tree of Israel. And what are they supposed to do? You're supposed to be observing these things because these things are blessings to us. They draw us closer to God. The revelation of who He is and His promises explode. They explode. That without fail, they should celebrate. Without fail, they should celebrate. Remember that. Remember that regarding the feast. Without fail... They should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. Verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. They shouldn't perish because the memory of them will not perish. They are going to stand on the day of judgment. Israel is going to be saved. Those who have committed their life to Yeshua are going to be remembered. The graves are going to bust open and we're going to rejoice with singing at the coming of Yeshua. Moving to verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of um, Abihel, with Mordechai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And Mordechai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth. Again, I ask you, who does that sound like? Mordecai the Jew went out with words of peace and truth. And it says Esther joined. If you go back to the top, the daughter of Abbey, Mordecai the Jew, along with Queen Esther, this is... This is amazing because this is exactly what the gospel has done. Yeshua, when he came in his ministry, he spoke words of peace and kindness. He had compassion on his people. And you know what? His apostles went out after them. Israel went out after the resurrection of the Lord and testified of his peace, of his shalom, of his goodness, of his mercies. Verse 31. To confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. And we have it today. It's been preserved. We have the book of Esther. It's not a coincidence, right? In closing, we move to chapter 10, it's only three verses. And we read, And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might. Interesting, in the closing of this document, yeah, you want to pay close attention to how this document, this prophecy closes. Where does all the focus go to? It's the power and the might of the king. In other words, of Abba Father. The power and the might. Glory is being given to him in the closing statement. But then it goes on to say, and the account of the greatness of Mordechai. Unbelievable. As it's going to close in the book, this book does something monumental. It brings the father, the king, close to Mordechai. It brings them side by side as though they are one. This is how it closes. And you think about the relationship of Yeshua with the Father. When He rose, He went and sat at the right hand of the Father. He is great. His greatness has been proclaimed. Every knee and every tongue is going to confess Him. The knee is going to bow, the tongue is going to confess that Yeshua is Lord. This is an amazing thing to see here at how this book decides to close bringing the king and Mordechai uh, together as a chad. And so the account of the greatness of Mordechai, and you think about the account of the, the greatness, what is the whole story? What is the gospel that's gone on? It's the account. It's the account of what Yeshua did in his ministry. It's the account that he rose from the dead. That's the deal. And here we see the account of the, of the greatness of Mordechai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Moving on to verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus. Again, going back, where does Yeshua sit? He sits at the right hand of the Father. What was the story that we talked about last time? It was about Joseph. 
Joseph, a typology of Yeshua, rose to be what? Second only to Pharaoh. It's this unbelievable relationship of who Yeshua is, right? Played out over and over again. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren. It's interesting that when you read in the Greek this verse, this is what it says. It says Mordecai acted with authority. That's what it says, that Mordecai acted with authority. And it's essentially conveying the same thing. It's only bringing it further into light. And the reason I bring this up is, what does Yeshua do? He acts with all the authority of his Father. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. You think all that, these are words of Yeshua. Yeshua says, all that the things the Father has, they are mine. All are to glorify the Son as they glorify the Father. You think about this authority at the end of Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And this is exactly, this is the picture that's being painted right at the closing of this book. The focus, it's like it draws all your focus. The last thing we're going to read, it's all about the fathers received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people. This goes back to Jeremiah 29. Yeshua only seeks the good for his people. To the point that he laid down his life to die for them. Amen? And speaking peace to all his countrymen. This, this story, uh, the story of Purim, the story of Esther, this story is a story for such a time as this. Amen? That's, this is what this is. It is so prophetic. It is so profound. But it gives constantly throughout. It does what the Bible does so well. It gives hope. Cling to that hope. No matter what we see come to fruition in this country in the coming months and the coming years, cling to his word because that will prevail. The things of the earth are going to pass away, but his word will prevail. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Abba, Father, we just come before you in the might, the great, mighty name of your son, Yeshua, um, who we rest in, who we put our hope in. Uh, all who believe in your Son, Father, are going to be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of Yeshua will be saved. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Yeshua and believe in our heart, Father, that you raised him, you promised we would be saved. If anyone is not, uh, you know who they are, Lord. If anyone is not walking with you, if anyone has departed from the narrow path from righteousness, Lord, I pray that you send your Holy Spirit out to convict, to convict them. Uh, to bring them back, to induce a godly fear, Lord, that we might not lose any. We don't want anyone to suffer destruction. Uh, You're not willing that any should perish. It is true. Uh, We just give you praise and glory, Lord. We thank you for your sacrifice, a sacrifice we don't deserve. We don't deserve anything. And yet you've given us eternal life. And uh, Lord, we pray for a move of the Holy Spirit in these last days, pour out your spirit. Open our eyes. Give us dreams and visions, Lord. Open our eyes to, to the spiritual realm. Seeing angels and demons, Lord. Take us out of this world mentally and in our heart, Lord. Take us out and let our eyes be affixed on the kingdom of God. And be fixed on your promises and your truth. Help us. Give us strength to hold fast, to cling to you, to not waver, to not compromise. Though our employers will try to get us to compromise, though people that the, the, will come into our life will get us to try to compromise our beliefs, our values, our morals that have been set forth in the Bible, Lord, give us strength to turn away from those things. We just pray these things in the mighty name of Yeshua. Amen.